here we go. It's been said more than once, okay, to live above with those we love. Oh, how that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, now that's another story, okay? And it never gets old because it's always true. It's always true. And it's true in the home. It's true in the workplace. It's true here at church. It seems the ones that we know best are sometimes the hardest to love and get along with. Please don't look at your spouse if you're sitting by them. It's always going to be true, this side of heaven. Listen, as long as we have sin natures, we're going to be hard to get along with. We are going to be uh, porcupines that poke one another and, and, and hurt one another and offend one another. And the sooner you and I accept this truth that there's no avoidance of being offended, getting offending others, of being hurt, the need for forgiveness, the sooner we can accept this, the better off we're going to be. But that acceptance doesn't have to be depressing. It doesn't have to be disappointing. It doesn't have to be demeaning. It doesn't have to be dividing. It can be uplifting and refreshing if we'll accept the fact that we need, there's barriers that need to be removed. There's roadblocks that need to be removed. In this little letter, This little letter has powerful principles to help you and I be reconciled in the reality of a messy life. And that's what we live in. And so the big message in this little letter, as we saw last week, is this. Real fellowship in Christ breaks through barriers to refreshing relationships with one another. But that refreshing relationship is on the other side of the breakthrough. And so we've got a breakthrough. So I've asked Jim Collinsworth to uh, read to us this little, little letter. I hope you're reading through it during the week. It takes less than four minutes to read. Amen. Indeed, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit as we dive into this book. Thank you, Jim. That was excellent. Paul is a master communicator. And what that means is everything in this little letter has meaning and purpose. And that includes the first three verses. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The first three verses is Paul's greeting. But it's more than that. Because in these three brief verses, Paul's going to give us the four fundamentals of real fellowship. Listen, if you don't get these four fundamentals, everything in the letter is built on these. And if you violate these four fundamentals, you're not going to break through to real fellowship with other believers, especially ones that you're crossways with. And so let's look at these four fundamentals. The first one is this. Real fellowship can never be forced on one another. Real fellowship can never be forced on one another. As much as we'd like to make people reconcile, as much as we would like to make people ask forgiveness when they've wronged me, as much as we would like to force people to forgive those who have asked for forgiveness, you just can't force it. And here's what we want to see in the greeting. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul 
in his letters. It's fascinating study to look through the letters of the Apostle Paul and look at how he identifies himself when he writes his letters. For instance, in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, early on in his ministry, some of the first churches he planted, he addresses himself to them as Paul. You know, Paul, we're bonded, we're knitted, we're close relationally. But then you go to a Galatians and he addresses himself, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, full on authority. Why? Because the Galatians were abandoning the gospel. And the gospel is everything. And so he had to come with great authority. And then in Romans, people that he had never met and who he saw and wanted to partner with in the work of the ministry, he identifies himself this way. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Yes, I'm an apostle, but really, I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave to Christ in the ministry. Join me. In that ministry. But here in Philemon, here in Philemon, it's Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because Paul is a prisoner for Christ and Paul is a prisoner of Christ. He's, he's making a point. He's driving a point home. He's stripping himself as, of his apostleship. He's stripping himself of, of his servanthood. And he's saying, I'm simply a prisoner, but not of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why? I'm a prisoner not because I did anything wrong, but because I was doing what's right. I was doing what Christ wants. He's my Lord, and it landed me in prison. But I'm also a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner not so much of Rome, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is large and in charge in my life. It's him that has placed me where I am. And it's him that I've released my rights to. Now, why does Paul emphasize this? Because real fellowship can never be forced. He's, he's basically saying, look, I, I, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And what I do is what he wants. It's not what I want. It's not what I, you know, I'm not fulfilling my agenda in life. I'm following the Lordship. His goal is for Philemon to break through the barriers to refreshing fellowship. With who? His runaway, repentive slave, Onesimus. You see, Philemon could power up and say, well, I'm the master. I'm the one that was offended. It was my resources that were sold. It was my time that was violated. I have the rights, and he's the runaway slave. He's a slave. He's in the wrong. And, and, and he could have this power deferential. But Paul's saying, whoa, wait a minute. I'm just a prisoner of Christ. I don't have any rights. I'm not powering up. I'm, I'm just simply serving Christ. And wherever that takes me and whatever that means, I'm willing to do it. So here's the principles. Number one. Real fellowship must be freely chosen by one another. Real fellowship, real reconciliation, 
real forgiveness must be freely chosen by one another. Paul's desire is not to force Philemon to experience. I mean, think about it. This sounds crazy when you say it out loud. I'm going to force you to have fellowship and you're going to enjoy it. Well, that's dumb. But you and I, when we're in these scenarios, this is exactly what we try to do. We do it more piously. We do it more, I don't want to say it, but deceptively, you know, it doesn't come off that way. Or we don't think it does, but that's what we're doing. Look at verses 8 through 10 and then verse 14. Look at verses 8 through 10 that Jim read for us. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you, to force you to do what's fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and there he says it again, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you. But then look at verse 14. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Voluntary. Have you ever tried to force someone to forgive another person? Have you ever tried to force someone to forgive you? Have you ever tried to pressure someone to admit they're wrong? Have you ever tried to make people accept one another instead of rejecting one another? How's that working? How did it work? How'd it go? There's got to be a better way, and there is a better way. So how do we motivate others to make a free choice that we know is in their best interest for the glory of Christ and that will bring real fellowship? Here's the second principle. Breakthrough fellowship is freely chosen by those who are beloved. Beloved. Not just loved, beloved. Unfortunately, several modern translations uh, will translate this as dear friend. I, I, I think this is better I, I, it's, it, and it's more accurate. Beloved, because you trace this idea of beloved through the Old Testament and David was Yahweh's beloved. It speaks of elect, the electing love of God. It speaks of God choosing someone who is undeserving and pours out his abundant, amazing love. You are beloved. You're in a state of constant love. And then that vertical love gets translated into a horizontal where we ought to call each other. And that's why I like when I'm preaching or teaching, addressing, address you as beloved to remind you. That everything you're hearing and everything that's happening, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is coming to you. It's allowed by a God who says you are beloved. And so that's the idea here. Notice what he says in verse 2, or verse 1 rather, to Philemon, our beloved. He starts with the motivation of love. See, Paul had the authority to command Philemon. He had the authority. And he, he kind of shows his card by saying, by saying it. You know, now, I have the authority 
You know, so Paul's not denying who he is. He's not setting aside his authority. He's using his authority instead to make an appeal. And so that's the second principle. Uh, Paul chose to use an appeal of compassion instead of an authority to command. And this was to motivate Philemon to choose freely. So look again at verse 8. Look again at verse 8. Therefore I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. There's the authority. Yet for love's sake, love's sake, I rather appeal to you. And then he states his weakness, his friendship. Paul, we have a relationship. His weakness, I'm aged and old. And his bondage to Christ And then he says it again, I appeal to you two times. I'm appealing. I'm appealing. And this is what I want you to see. That even though, even though you can't force someone to reconcile and experience real fellowship, that doesn't mean you don't try. That doesn't mean you don't challenge them. That doesn't mean you don't pursue them. That instead of willing them to do it, you woo them to do it. But you do woo them. Are you with me? Hey, when people are at odds, they're not, they're not drawn to one another. The only way they're going to be drawn is that when we reach out like Jesus Christ and we grab one and we grab the other and we seek in love to bring them together. Does, that, does it help? Does that make sense? So we appeal. We appeal. Listen, the apostle introduced himself as a prisoner in order that his experiences might be the basis of an appeal, not on the basis of authority, but on love. Paul might have given a command as an apostle like he did in Galatians. He might have said it on the basis of being a servant like he did to the Romans. But Paul's letting his present position as a prisoner be an appeal in itself to Philemon. He's emphasizing his experience to motivate Philemon, to model for Philemon. Look, this isn't going to work until you lay down your your rights. This isn't going to work until you realize that you are a prisoner of Christ. And that's a good thing. See, listen, Philemon's going to read this epistle Just like you and I would, when we're challenged to reconcile with people who are offended to us. When when people have offended us and we're challenged to reconcile, we say that's impossible. That's a hard thing to do. When Philemon hears this letter, he's going to hear, that is hard. I don't want to do that. But then the spirit is going to convict him. The one asking you. To accept your one-away slave is not one who's lived a, a life of ease. He's not one who is always held tightly to his rights. He's not one who is even now free to indulge his every whim of the flesh. But no, it's one who is willing to suffer imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. Listen, Paul is so Christ-like in what he's doing. Christ is appealing to you and you and you to reconcile. 
and to ask forgiveness and to give forgiveness. And he is Christ who has the wounds in his wrists and his side and his feet, who, who was bound and taken to the cross in order to provide for our reconciliation. Such a one is appealing to us, though he could force us. Isn't that beautiful? A Lord who loves to the point of being bound to the cross. An apostle who loves and could order, but instead appeals. It's a beautiful thing. Philemon would feel that if he could endure that for the gospel, if Paul can do this, then can't I reconcile with Onesimus? See, this is why Paul first and foremost addresses Philemon as the beloved and then fellow laborer. Look at what he says. Philemon, our beloved, our beloved and fellow worker. He links together the bond of love and the bond of labor. Because that's really what reconciliation is about in Christ. It's to go to work for Christ. It's to link arms together, to be a team of laborers in the gospel. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the lack of reconciliation puts the work of the gospel, it halts the work of the gospel. Now, it's necessary to deal with messes, but as long as we're dealing with messes, we're not having an outward focus for the gospel. And it is consuming, it is draining, and it will burn you out to prolong this process of being offended and not forgiving or being guilt-ridden and not asking forgiveness. So what we see is Paul chose to woo Philemon to obey rather than will him to obey because real fellowship cannot be forced. But that brings us to fundamental number two. And that's this. Real fellowship is always the result of releasing our rights. It's always the result of releasing our rights. You see, that's the thing. If you can't be forced, then what's the choice to be made? The choice is to freely release my rights. And that's the answer. Notice when Paul says a prisoner, that's, the, uh, that's an accurate translation. You know, that's, the, that's what it means. Literally, it's a chained one. A chain, it, literally the word for chain, the, 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 uh, it, it's, it, it's a metaphor. It's, it's, it's a, a figure of speech where the thing represents the reality. The chains represent that I'm, I'm in prison. I'm a chained one. I'm a bound one. There's no, listen, there's no greater picture of a person without rights than a prisoner. Now, that's fastly changing in our culture, so forget about, forget about you know, air-conditioned TVs and, and, you know, and living better than the homeless. Forget about that. And real imprisonment means you eat what you're told to eat. You live where you're told to live. You sleep 
when you're told to sleep, you're, you're, you, you just don't have any rights. And that's the point. You forfeited those. And that's what Paul's experiencing. But it might be easy to think, listen, it might be easy to think, well, yeah, he's an apostle. Or you might say, yeah, Chris, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do those things. Paul's supposed to do those things. But look who he includes in his greeting. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and who? Timothy, our what? Our brother. Timothy, our brother. So what's the idea here? The idea is this. Paul, in one sense, had to be where he was. Rome had arrested him, and he was there. Timothy was there because he voluntarily chose. Timothy said, I'm going to identify with a prisoner. I'm going to release my rights. I'm going to limit myself because I want to identify with Christ's apostle. That's just powerful, powerful stuff. You see, here's the reality. And listen to this. Here's two men who have come to Rome voluntarily. One in chains, one not in chains. You say, wait a minute, what, voluntary? Paul's in prison, he's in chains. No, in reality, they are both there voluntarily. Paul's in prison because he, was, he has voluntarily released his rights to serve Christ and in serving Christ that has led him to prison. Timothy is with Paul in imprisonment because he too has voluntarily released his rights. He could have fled. He could have uh, pursued, you know, hey, I got important ministry over here, you know. He could have enjoyed being a pastor of a church in a safe, comfortable setting. He, he could have exercised his gift as pastor teacher as he done, but he gave up all those rights. He gave up what might have been his position, his prominence, his privilege, so that he could have what? The privilege of suffering with the apostle. And Paul is delighted to associate himself with Timothy, our brother. And let me say to you that Christ it gladly associates himself with you when you release your rights like he did. So let's look at it. Real fellowship is always the result of three things. One, releasing our rights. Releasing our rights. What kind of rights? Uh, my right to make the other person grovel. My right to not forgive. My right to have them come to me on my terms. My right to say, well, you need to suffer a little bit before I forgive you. It's, it's real. Real. All those things. But you know what Christ, uh, you know what Paul says? I give up all those things. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I forget the past. I press on to the prize of the upward call. Release your rights. Number two, releasing our desire for real fellowship. See, here's the other thing. Oh, I wish they would repent. Oh, I wish I could forgive them if they would just repent. You know, we, we, I want this to be resolved. I desire this to be resolved. And sometimes you got to release that. you got to release that desire and let God work in their heart. Make sense? 
Number three, release our need for others to do what's right. Okay, I need you to do this. I can't have peace unless you do the right thing. You ever been there? Where you let someone else's disobedience rob you of your own peace? Where you say, look, and then your motivation becomes manipulation. And you're like, you got to do this because if you don't do this, I can't be at peace. You can't let others rob you of your joy in Christ. Otherwise, you'll never have joy. So what happens if you and I personally choose to retain our rights instead of releasing them? Does it really matter what I do to you and what you do to me? After all, isn't this really a personal matter between Philemon and Onesimus? Paul, why are you sticking your, and it said he had a, a rather large hooked nose. Why are you sticking that large hooked nose into my business? Isn't this just a private matter, a family matter? Why does it matter to anyone else? Fundamental number three, real fellowship is personal, but never private. In fact, let's, uh, let's, let's say that out loud together. Real fellowship, oh no, I mean together. Real fellowship is always personal, but never private. Always personal, but never private. Look at what he says in verse 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, there's someone else, to Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and if that's not broad enough, and to the whole church in your house. Well, so much for a private matter. Thank you very much, Philemon, or thank you very much, Paul. For a personal letter, and it is, about a private matter between two people, five people in the entire church are brought into the situation. Not only that, in this whole letter, 11 people are mentioned. Why is that? Well, number one, Philemon was personally responsible for the breakthrough with Onesimus. So let me get this, let, let me let this sink in. Only Philemon can make this choice. Philemon can't be forced to make this choice. Only Philemon is responsible to make this choice. And I would add, only Philemon is going to give an account to the Lord if he doesn't do it. The letter is addressed to him first and foremost. And so the appeal is made to him and him alone. And I have in your notes, we talked last week about singular you and southern, 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 southern y'all. All right. So what I have for you are all the singular yous. So it's very evident. I appeal to you, Philemon, no one else. I'm sending him back. You, no one else can do this. You receive him. You, and you just read down through there. That's all the singulars. So here, here's my warning to you. 
or here's my word of advice to all of us. That when people have sinned and when reconciliation needs to take place, we can't do that for them. And we can't have someone else do that for them. You know, so if if Aphia is his wife and if um, Archippus is his son and the pastor, Paul isn't going through them to get Philemon to reconcile. He's going directly to who? Philemon. So that's that's critical. But here's the second principle. Philemon was also personally accountable for real fellowship to the rest of the church. Always personal, never private. Always personal, never private. Now, let me, you know, let me make a uh, a disclaimer. We confess sin as wide as the circle of known sin. Okay, so when I say never private, we don't send out in our email blast a list of everyone's sins they confessed this past week. Is that a good thing? Okay, that's a good thing. But the wider the circle of the known sin, the wider the responsibility to do it. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you to see. That even when I sin privately, and it's known maybe only to me in my heart, that still affects everyone in this room if I don't deal with it. And if there's a, 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 a disconnect between two people in our church, even if we don't need to know about what it was, that disconnect has ripples that ripples through. And you're like, I don't, something's, something's just not right there. And so you, you sense that, you see that. Philemon was accountable. Ultimately, he was accountable to the church. Now, why is Paul doing this? If this is such a personal letter and such a personal matter, why widen the knowledge of it? Because for one thing, it was known to the whole church because where did the church meet? In Philemon's house. Where was Onesimus a slave? In Philemon's house. Next Sunday you come to church. Where's that slave Onesimus? That rascal ran away. Stole money. Hurt me. Hurt our household. Whole church would know about it. That's why they're they're, they're affected by it. They know about it. But it's only Philemon who can deal with it. Always personal. Never private. None of us live in isolation from one another. And that's why, even though it's a personal choice, we should pursue and challenge and woo and love one another to break through barriers to real fellowship. So here's what I want you to see. Observe all the plural yous or y'alls. There's... Three of them. First of all, in verse 3, in the greeting. Isn't it interesting that he's addressing Philemon, but then he says, grace to you all. 
peace to you all because you're all going to need it. Because once, you're going to need it for two reasons. If Philemon rejects Onesimus, you as a church are going to have to deal with Philemon. You may even have to find a new place to meet as a church because Philemon may just really rebel. But also you need grace and peace because if Philemon does accept Onesimus, guess what? He's a brother in Christ now. There's a new member in the church. Are you guys all going to accept him like Philemon has? And then think of this. The church meets in Philemon's home. If the church rejects Onesimus, Philemon's going to have to kick out the church and say, well, Onesimus, I guess it's just you and me. We're going we're to start over. See, there's all these dynamics at play because it's always personal. It's never private. Listen, listen to me. Every book I have ever read on resolving church conflict says the key is the congregation as a whole. It's a corporate, it's a community effort to hold one another accountable to experience refreshing relationships. But how is that possible when we've been hurt so deeply? How is that? Because some, some I mean, life, sin is dark. Sin is, is devilish. It's demonic. And it's hurtful and it's painful. And let's just be honest, we don't have the resources to deal with it. So fundamental number four is this. Real fellowship is never possible apart from divine resources. That's why he says, verse 3, Oh, beloved, I say to you right now, I say to you, don't gloss over Paul's greetings. Ah, grace and peace. He always says that. Yeah, he always says it. And you know what? He always begins with it. And you know what else he does? He always ends with it. Because... He knows everything that I write in between, if it's not God's grace, it ain't going to happen. Wow. That's some powerful stuff. So what are these divine resources? Let's look at it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Divine resources are grace and peace. Grace and peace. The power and desire to do God's will that we don't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. I can't do it. And God says, I know, but I can and I'll do it through you. Grace, peace is that wholeness, that rest, that refreshment. Peace is the result of receiving God's grace and enables us to experience the rest, the rejoicing, the refreshment that comes from breakthrough fellowship. So here's the means. And this is the goal. And who gives both of them to us? God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The means and the goal. You don't have to manufacture this. You don't have to manipulate this. You don't have to be in control of this. God has the resources. And He gives us. Listen. Every, everyone will hit the wall of broken fellowship. You with me? And sometimes you're like, a wall? What, what are you talking singular? I can tell you, walls 
But on the other side of those walls is peace. And the way you break through is by God's grace. So let's look at it. where these resources come from. A divine relationship. The resources are only found in relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely my Savior, my Santa Claus, my aged grandfather up in the sky who pats me on the head and always approves of everything I do. No, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this. What's this mean? The fatherhood of God provides the resources to release our rights and risk accepting others who have wronged us. I don't know about you, but I've been there. Where I've needed to forgive those that I didn't want to forgive. I needed to reach out to those I wanted to withdraw from. And I'm telling you, if you don't remind yourself... If you don't pray through the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to see you holy in this, even though I'm hurt. Right? It's, 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 he, he has the resources. He has the resources. Listen to me. Listen to me. He provides our, his children with the needed security of his unconditional love. What if they reject me? What if they don't forgive me? What if they don't ever repent? It's okay. You're secure in the Father. He gives his children the needed significance of being a part of his family. You're significant. You're my son. You're my daughter. Yeah, but they don't love me. And they won't make peace with me. That's okay. You're mine. Beloved. He gives us the needed status of being his sons, his firstborn sons. Even as a woman, you are the privileged firstborn status of a son. With all the rights and privileges of that. Listen. Broken relationships cannot rob you of your status, your significance, and your security In God the Father. That is a gift of His grace. But that gift is to be leveraged and shared with those who have wronged us. Because we didn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. And we should show it to them. Well, how do we do this? Number The second point. The Lordship of Jesus Christ provides the needed relationship. We have a mediator who hung on a cross, and as I said earlier, his arms outstretched more this way to a holy father, to an unholy world, and he hung in the balance. And he said, I will be the mediator. And Paul is stepping up to be a mediator between these two individuals, just like Christ was for him. It's a beautiful picture. And I'll say this, 30 plus years of ministry here, Christians, including pastors and counselors, professional counselors, do a lousy job of being mediators of this. It is hard to find even pastors who will mediate because it is messy and it doesn't end well often 
And you, the mediator, just as Christ, often get accused of not fixing the problem. But I'm telling you, Paul's sticking himself in that vulnerable position because Christ hung himself in that vulnerable position for him. And he's willing to do it for others. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And here's Paul's prayer in verse 6. We'll talk about this next week. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing. And where are those good things? Which is in you for Christ's sake, because of Christ, for Christ, through Christ, in Christ. It's all about Christ. So let me end with this quote. I have it in your notes. One of my professors from Dallas Seminary, J. Dwight Pentecost. In the little epistle to Philemon, Onesimus, who is a runaway rebel, is restored to his master's home, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. The epistle graphically illustrates that which God does in salvation through Jesus Christ. God created man to be in subjection to himself and through him to subject all creation to the creator. Early in created history, man rebelled against the creator. The history of the creature and the history of the world is the history of rebellion against God. No rebel would voluntarily surrender to the one against whom he is rebelling. And unless a God of mercy and grace subdued the rebel, subjected him to himself, and brought him to himself through the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, he would continue as a rebel. Christians, look at the cross of Calvary. Not to watch the suffering of Christ, but because that is where sinful men belong. Their Christ was passing the very debt that man had incurred. When he cried, it is finished, to tell us die, he was saying to God that the debt had been paid to the fullest. It is that one who invites all to himself. Paul could say, I, Paul the prisoner, beseech you. Christ says, I, the crucified one, invite you to myself. Man, as a rebel against God, is invited to come to God in response to the plea of God's prisoner. That's just the greeting. There's four fundamentals. So I really ask you, Search your heart this morning. Don't leave here. Don't leave here today without searching and saying, am I violating these four fundamentals? And maybe some of you, I don't know, are right now in a, in a, in a, 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 a tough situation that needs reconciliation, that needs forgiveness, that needs grace, that lacks peace. And I just want to challenge you. Get on your knees. And look at these four fundamentals and say, Lord, by your grace, seal them in my heart. And if you need help walking through that, my wife and I will gladly sit and listen and help you walk through that. There's others who can do that as well.
Because once you've walked this path, you really know the struggles and you really know the greatness of God's grace that even when it goes unreconciled, He is a God of grace and peace. Amen? Don't let others rob you of your joy. And it's hard. But you can have that grace and peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that these truths, don't let them remain truth on paper. Don't let them merely be truths that others experience. Lord, I pray for each person this morning that we all experience this, that we all know this because hard times and broken relationships are unavoidable in this fallen, depraved world because we are depraved. But Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, I beseech you that your grace and peace would be sufficient, that we would not, life is short, we are not promised tomorrow. Death is certain. May we be as prepared as we possibly can be, having sought the reconciliation that is available. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.